And Lord, thanks that we are the body of Christ on earth, all of those who have come to know your Son, connected by your Spirit. Help us to remember to pray for and support one another as we do Mal this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Uh, do you, have you guys had the experience in the past where you're watching a sporting event and the camera goes through the audience and someone holds up this sign. Normally it's a big rectangular sign that says John 3.16. Have you guys seen this? Has everybody seen this? It seems to me this was more frequent years ago. I, I may be wrong on this. I don't know. I don't see that much television. I loved the guy, and it seemed like the same guy around the country. Golf venues, basketball, football. He wore a clown uh, wig, you know, this big frizzy wig because it drew attention to him, and then he'd hold up this John 3.16 sign. And I always thought that was great. I was sitting in the fire station one day watching a sporting event, and there in the crowd is this guy who holds up this John 3.16 sign. And I thought, well, that's, that's neat. That's, you know, I'm thinking the same thing. And the guy next to me, we're, we're talking. I'm assuming he sees the same thing I see and knows the same thing I know. And we're talking, and I realize he doesn't know what John 3.16 is or what it means. And my jaw dropped. I thought, how can you not know what that is or what it means? To, uh, to my friend, John 3.16 was a curiosity. It was a symbol without meaning. He had no clue. And he wasn't curious enough to follow it up. And he had seen the same thing repeatedly, just like we had. I just took it for granted that he knew, and he didn't. This is a guy who goes to church every week. He didn't know what John 3.16 was. I was floored and chagrined. So we had a nice little conversation about John 3.16. But for him, a symbol without meaning. You know, for us, perhaps, many of us, John 3.16 is so well known that it's a verse that you can recite off the top of your head without thinking and may not give it any more credence or value than that. John 3.16. This morning we're going to look at John 3.16. This is arguably, as we said when we introduced the Gospel of John, the best known verse in the Bible. It is the Gospel in a verse, if you will. And it's not without reason that it's the best known verse in the Bible. This is a verse that you can, like a stone wall, you can crush yourself against its hard reality. Or it's like a feather mattress that you can fall into and be comforted from. And the truth of this verse can have the impact on you or me or others of hardening you like clay in the light of the sun or melting you like butter. It's this verse that encapsulates God's key character, which is love, with his key act in history, which was giving his son for the world. For John, this is the beginning and the end of all he counts valuable and worthwhile in telling us in his gospel. This verse is the theme, and it's the heart, and it's the soul of John's gospel. Um, we probably know this in various versions. Do you guys mind quoting this with me? It'd be close enough. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. We're going to look at this in four different phrases. 
The first, God so loved the world. We live in a uh, materially very, very rich culture and time certainly, but a very cynical uh, culture and time also, very unbelieving and, and hardened culture. How many times have you heard someone say something like this? If God is really love, why did he let this thing or that thing happen? Why did God allow the Holocaust? Why did God allow Saddam Hussein? Why did God allow Hitler or Stalin or Mao? Or You pick the tragedy or the massacre or whatever. If God is loving, why did he allow that to happen? Or if God is really loving, why does he let the world go through the things the world goes through today? Maybe more to the point and closer to home. If God is really loving, why does he allow the things in my life that he does? If God is loving, where's the beef? Where is the experience of God's love in my life? I would argue that John 3.16 is the answer to those questions and lots more. And that in John 3.16, the truth of God's goodness and the reality of his love is condensed, as it were, into a single drop, the drop that is this verse. God so loved the world. Remember that in biblical language, love... If it doesn't have anything to do with romance or sex or other things we might associate with love, love at its very basic foundation level means doing what is in another person's best interest. You could say doing right by another person, but doing right in the highest sense. That's biblical love. This says God so loved the world. God so loved the world. God has the world's best interest in mind. That's what this verse starts with. God is going to do right by the world in seeking what is in the world's best interest, the world being humanity, you and me. So God loves the world. Before we go on, just think about the world that he loves for just a second. God loves the world. He's going to seek what is in the world's best interest, this world filled with people like you and I. And let's just think about this world for just a second. God is going to love, did love, a world that would sooner trust the father of all lies than the God of all truth. That's not just Genesis 3 and the temptation story. That's today. God loved a world and those in it who prefer to call evil good and good evil. God loves a world whose inhabitants' hearts are set on evil continually. God is loving a world and those in it who justify themselves at his expense, who profess allegiance to him. By the way, these are religious people. Profess allegiance to him with their words, but live as though he does not exist. God loves a world, did right by a world, sought the world's best interest for those who will in the end, not happen yet, will choose the son of his arch enemy, Satan, over his own beloved spotless son. God so loved this wretched deficient, God-defying world. He's seeking the best interest of people like you and I, born rebellious, living rebellious. This is the world that he loves. In fact, you remember we've talked about this before, but the term world used generally here just to mean the place that we occupy is elsewhere used throughout the New Testament to signify the alienated, Satan-led system that is at odds with God not just separated in space or time, but this rebel world order led by Satan, opposed to God, enemies of God, 
God loved his enemies. That's you and me. God loved, and that is he sought what was in the best interest of this sinful, rebellious, hypocritical, God-rejecting, Christ-rejecting world. God so loved the world. The second phrase, that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, Scripture says in one place that uh, no man is ever given to God. That is, in one ultimate sense, God is always the giver. It can't be otherwise. God created all things. Everything you and I enjoy, we created because he gave it. If we give something to God, we simply return to him what was his originally. No one gives in any ultimate sense, but God. God gave. Now, in this case, he didn't give us just anything. You know, on a daily level, God gives lots of good things for us to enjoy, good food, homes, etc. In this verse and in this context, he didn't give us just anything. He didn't give us just anything good, but he gave us his son. Now, if you ask God the Father, what is the richest treasure? What matters more to him than anything else in his universe? It wouldn't be planets or solar systems. It wouldn't be gold. It wouldn't be kingdoms or realms. It would be one and only one thing, and that would be his son. When this says God gave his son, God gave what he treasured above all else. God gave a sinful, rebellious, God-hating world, his beloved, his treasured, his cherished son. Gave us his son. Now think about this for just a minute. If God gave his son, if that just meant that God the Son, omnipotent and omniscient, constrains himself to come to earth to be the king and rule over the earth, the kind of king the Jews were looking for originally, that would be an incredible humiliation all by itself. An incredible humbling for the omniscient, omnipotent God to take on humanity and be constrained, as it were, by human form. That would be a huge step down. God would be slumming it, wouldn't he? Even to be the highest king on earth if he has to leave heaven to do it. And that's what it would take for God to give us his son even as the highest form of humanity in the form of a king. But of course, when he gave us his son, it doesn't just mean that he he gave us his son and Jesus comes to earth and, and rules and reigns. But when it says he gave us his only begotten son, it means that he gave up his son for you and I in death as a sacrifice for sin. He gave up his son, didn't just give his son to the world, but send his son to the world to die for your sins and mine. And not just a gruesome, horrendous death and suffering, which would be bad enough, but death on a cross. You remember the Philippians passage talks about this humbling and humbling and humbling. So he gives them to this horrendous physical death and humiliation on a cross. But beyond that, we talked about this last week, He gave him up to spiritual death. And you remember that biblically death is separation. Death equals separation. Physical death, separation of a body from a soul or spirit. For Jesus to die on the cross besides the physical component, he suffered separation from his father. We're we're creatures born in time. We can't appreciate timelessness, eternity. God does not occupy. God interacts in time, but he's not bound by time. Here's the eternal Son and Father who 
in timeless nests have shared each other's company, but on the cross are cut off from each other. This had never happened before, wouldn't happen again. So that Jesus cries out on the cross, My God, my God, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? This is when God the Son takes on the sins of the world, your sins and mine, and God the Father cannot associate with him now, must turn away, breaks off the eternal fellowship they had had when Jesus takes our sin on, on the cross. And by the way, I assume that in the hours Jesus hangs on the cross, six hours, the first three, physical suffering, but it is, I assume, the last three hours when it says darkness comes and covers the earth in which God the Father withdraws from God the Son because during that time, Jesus was made sin for us and the Father cannot have anything to do with him in any kind of fellowship because of that. So when it says God gave his Son, God is giving his Son to become the one and only Lamb of God who's going to die on a tree for you and I. He cut off his eternal fellowship with his son when he became sin for us on the cross. We're going to talk about this more next week when we look at a little bit more of John 3. But think about this for just a minute. If you and I look for a savior, save us from our sin. Remember that the penalty of sin is death. If you and I look for a savior, someone who can save us from our death, our eternal death, uh, we need someone who can take our place and they have to be morally perfect. In other words, if Stan says, Mike, I volunteer to take your death penalty, God would say, Stan, ain't good enough. Why? Because Stan's under the same death penalty. The scripture says of everyone ever born on earth, we're all sinful and deficient. We all fall short of God's standard. You know what that means? Since we all sin, we all are under the same penalty. We're all under a death sentence. I can't die for your sins any more than you can die for mine. I'm going to die for my own sins, and you're going to die for your sins if somebody doesn't provide a Savior. This is why in the Old Testament economy, you could not provide an animal for a sacrifice that was not physically blameless, without blemish or spot. The animal, the type, the picture, the foreshadowing of Christ who had come was spotless because anyone or anything that could die for us, that is, take our death penalty, could not themselves be under a death penalty. There'd be no payment otherwise. They'd be dying for their sins. We had to have a morally perfect substitute or we have no salvation from sin. So if we look to our own ranks for a Savior, we look in vain because none of us can be that sacrifice because we're all under the same death penalty. If God the Father did not sovereignly, by his own initiative, send his Son to the earth to become one of us and to die for our sins, we would all, every one of us, all of humanity from all time, Billions of us would all die without hope and without God. Every one of us. There is no salvation through man. Psalm 49 says the same thing. Man in his pomp, man in his highest state, he dies like a dog in the field. He has no spiritual glory, no spiritual honor, no spiritual innocence to bring to God. 
If God doesn't provide the lamb, you and I and everyone born on this planet dies in our sins. Getting back to that question, is God really loving? No matter what difficulty you suffer, and I mean no matter what difficulty you suffer, no matter how depressed you may ever feel, no matter what circumstance, unfair, unjust, raunchy, cruddy, etc., you ever experience in your life, if you're ever tempted to think that God doesn't care or that he's unwilling to help you or that he's somehow hardened in indifference, you remember this one phrase, he gave his only begotten son. He gave his only begotten son. Romans 8.32 says the same thing, and it's with this same thought. He didn't spare his own son. This is the most costly thing possible. He won't spare anything else. He gave his son for you and I. It is the ultimate symbol and reality of God's love for you and I and the world. This phrase, he gave his only begotten son, is the end of all arguments anyone can make against God. If you're ever tempted to feel like God's forsaken you, you let this phrase ring in your mind. He gave his only begotten son. That is the beginning and the end of any argument anyone on earth can ever have against God or any lack of love. He gave his son. He gave his son. Why did he give his son? Third phrase, that whoever believes in him should not perish. Should not perish. Again, we're going to talk about more of this next week. But uh, perish, this is an interesting word. In the Greek, uh, you remember when you read in the book of Revelation about this destroyer in the end time, Apollyon? Destroyer, destruction, that's the same Greek word for perish. God sent his son that whoever believes in him would not perish be destroyed, end in eternal destruction. And when we're talking about destruction, this is not what some call annihilationism. This is not that sinners cease to exist. It's not ceaseless, but it is the eternal being given over to destruction, eternal destruction, the contrast of eternal life, eternal destruction with Satan and his demons in the lake of fire that burns forever and ever, the second death, Revelation says. Every person born on this earth is like a lemming headed for the cliff. You know, lemmings do this. I remember reading this as a kid. Lemmings, no thought. They're in the crowd, and they'll rush over the cliff without ever thinking. The whole group will go right over the cliff. We're lemmings. Everyone born on this earth is a lemming in a big group, and we're all running over the same cliff of destruction, of perishing, of eternal death, of separation from God who is life forever and ever. There is absolutely no thought in the Bible that you and I live as kind of good Joes on earth, and when we die, God will weigh us in the balance and see do we go to heaven or hell. There is no biblical thought. There's no biblical teaching along that line. The biblical teaching is you and I are sinners. We're born sinners. We sin in thought, word, and deed. We sin intentionally. We sin unintentionally. And from the moment of our conception and birth, we're on one lemming path over the cliff of destruction and eternal death. Period. 
those who will die eternally, they weren't weighed in the balances. There was never any question. There is no question. None. So that unless there is an interruption of this flight over the cliff, we're all going down. We will all perish unless there's an interruption. Unless the path of our life diverges from where we've started, we will all, every one of us, perish. We will perish. Without God giving us his Son, all of us from all time perish. Think about this. You and I, apart from Christ, even now, we are perishing. The people you work with, they're perishing. The friends you chat with, the relatives you see occasionally, they're all perishing. There's no ifs about this. We're all perishing unless there's an interruption in our direction and the path and the course of our life. So what do we do to keep from perishing? What merit do we work up? What good thing do we do? This verse said it. Whoever believes. You and I don't work up any merit. We are paupers before God spiritually. If you remember... There's a vision in Zechariah in which Joshua the high priest stands before God. Joshua the high priest. This is as good as we get. And yet Zechariah sees him as he is clothed morally. He is in filthy, filthy rags. You and I provide no merit here whatsoever. God sends his son that whoever believes would not perish. It's Christ's merit that we're interested in here, not our own. We don't merit anything. We simply do one thing. You remember this is the key word in John's Gospel. We do one thing and one thing only. We believe. We believe. We believe in His Son. We trust what His Son did for us. We accept the reality or the truth of who Jesus is and what He did. We say, I'll take that. Yes, Lord, I believe. I trust you. I accept that. That's what we do. God sent his son into the world so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. There's the downside, God saving us through his son from eternal destruction, from perishing eternally, and he saves us to eternal life. Eternal life. This is life with a capital L. This is life that has no end. It's real life, or as Jesus says in John 10, this is abundant, or it's overflowing life. It's life running over like a waterfall, Niagara Falls kind of life. Or it's life swelling up like ocean waves, life swelling up from underneath you and around you. It's the joy of living soaring up to the clouds, or it's the peace of living settled down in clover. John, the same author, is going to talk more about this in Revelation. Listen to some phrases of life, eternal life, out of Revelation 21 and 22. They, believers, they'll be his people. God himself will be among them. He's separated from us now in heaven. God will be among them. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning, no sadness, no crying, no pain. The first things have passed away. 
God says, Behold, I'm making all things new. No taint of sadness or death. He says, I'll give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. I will be his God. He will be my son. God the Father calling you and I, sons and daughters. No longer any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. This is the place we live. They'll see his face. If you're like me, I long for the day when I can just look Christ in the eyes. Just, it'll, I'll be undone, but it'll be the best undoing that could ever happen. We'll see his face. No longer any night, and we won't have need of light of lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. God takes spiritual paupers like you and I, and he sets us with him on his own throne to rule and reign with him forever and ever. That's eternal life. Can you imagine any more dramatic transformation or turnaround? I mean, on one hand, our eternal destiny could be consigned with Satan and his demons to the lake of fire forever and ever. Or we can rule and reign with the God of all life forever and ever. Which one would you want to choose? This is a no-brainer. Full life, real life, life in God's family, with God, forever and ever. So, God so loved the world, doing what's in the best interest of folks like you and me, so that he gave his only begotten Son, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, that whoever would believe in him, this is whoever, anyone who wills, come and drink of the water of life freely. Anyone who will believe would not perish eternal, everlasting destruction away from the presence of the God of all life, would not perish, but have eternal life, life with God in his family, full life, abundant life, peace and joy forever and ever. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. I like to close my teachings with an illustration. You know, illustrations illuminate one thing with another. And the more I prayed about this, I thought, you know, there's no better illustration than to close this with the Lord's Supper, which is what we're going to do right now. This is not a part of the regular worship time, which we'll have an open worship to follow. But I want us, in fact, I could think of no more fitting thing to do with the conclusion of this verse than to remember what God's done for us in Jesus' death and resurrection. God gave his son so we could be saved. And Jesus says, guys, when you want to remember me, do this. Take this bread and break it and remember my body broken in death for you. I'm paying for your sin, for your deliverance. And take that cup and drink from it. And when you do, remember my blood, that is my life, poured out for you. Remember what I did for you. So you could be with me, so I could be with you forever. And this morning when you take the Lord's Supper, do this also. Remember that it was the Father who gave his Son it wasn't just Jesus suffering on the cross. Because remember that Abraham goes up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac because he was commanded to. But see, they're just pictures of a grander scheme. 
They're pictures, they're shadows, they're types of God the Father giving His Son Jesus. And just as Abraham raised the life that knife to slay his own son, God the Father turned from His own Son, killed in that spiritual sense His own Son, for you and I. This morning when you take the Lord's Supper, remember what Jesus did for us in His death, in His crucifixion, in His resurrection. But remember what His dad did for us. His dad gave up His Son. His dad turned from His Son on the cross because He who had known no sin became sin for you and I. Um, We're going to take 10 minutes here. Come up as soon as you're ready. Take the elements back to your seat and take those. Think about the Father. Think about the Son and I'll close us in prayer and we'll go on with the musical portion of our worship, okay? Lord, we just commit the next few minutes to remember the gift you gave us in your Son, what he did for us, Lord, and the great cost at which you redeemed us. Thanks for loving us, Lord.